0: I was really excited about meeting the co-founder of The Big Issue, Phil Ryan. Over the years, he's been a passionate campaigner about many things, from helping the homeless to help themselves, to saving his beloved Denmark Street, or Timpan Alley, from the voracious appetite of London's property-owning developers. Phil's astonishing music career has seen him travel the world over 40 years. One special highlight was when he fronted the Animals in Red Square, Moscow, playing in front of 100,000 fans. Phil is a prolific singer-songwriter and live performer. He's also an entrepreneur who is never scared to try something bold and new. From the days when he set up London's iconic 12 Bar Club to the numerous novels he has written and musical score for the stage version of Silas Marner. Phil has strong views on just about every topic. And when we met recently for tea and had his favorite Victoria sponge cake outside at Regent's Park Cafe, he generously shared some of his thoughts. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London legacy? So it's lovely to be here with my guest today, who's Phil Ryan, who's a multi talented musician, author, playwright, and a passionate campaigner. And we're sitting outside in the, I forgot what it's called already, the Regents Park, Park Cafe. Regents Park Cafe, which for a change, the sun is shining um, after all the horrible weather we've had. Uh, and it's just a pleasure to be here with Phil, who's taken time out to, to be with us today. So I just wanted to touch. First of all, on your musical background and doing a little bit of research as I did before we met, it struck me that your career has spanned many or several decades, yes, unless, unless, let's be polite about it, not many, several decades. And I noticed that you became involved in music or got an interest in music from a very young age. So I was interested to know what it was that sort of prompted you to, to take up, I think it was a banjo or a ukulele to start with. Well, a, a short potted history now that I'm 2000 years old was that my
1: father, uh, who's passed on now, because um, he was old and he died, was a very famous stuntman called Paddy Ryan. He was the first uh, one to win Oscars and and all this sort of stuff. So having a mad father who used to jump out of windows on fire for a living means your childhood is going to be pretty unusual, and it was. But he always encouraged me to be creative. And so as a child, I read, I was given hundreds of books. I was one of those precocious children I could read by the age of four. And so I just had this mad library that got bigger and bigger. What
0: what, what sort of books did you read? What what, what interested you?
1: I was first given all the mythologies. Um, So I read every mythology from around the world. Then I then went through all of the classics. So I read all of Dickens, all of Shakespeare. And then because I was always interested in other countries, I started reading, you know, you know, I know, Cervantes and Lorca and Spanish stuff. And then I started looking at that. So I was kind of hoovering in ideas that, that would eventually make me a writer many years down the line. But I quickly found, and it was a Christmas gift, as all of these things are for many people, was a, a little ukulele. And normally children get given the ukulele at Christmas. And they go, oh, great. And they put it on the palm of the others. But I just love this thing. And I couldn't stop playing it. And then, and this is absolute truth. I'm not making this up for your podcast. I had obviously some kind of criminal tendency because I realized that we had lots of famous people come to our house. So I'd get up in the morning. It'd be Sean Connery. There'd be Roger Moore on the lawn and stuff. So it was a very unusual all childhood. your
0: father's connection.
1: Yeah, because he was in Peter Sellers. Dada. So he did all of these things. So there were all these people turning up and they had money. I mean, we had money as well, but um, I didn't have as much as them because I was seven. But I quickly realized that these guys with this appealing small child playing songs would always give me a couple of quid. So every time anybody turned up, I ran out to be greeted by my father, who kind of like was at roll his eyes. And then I'd launch into some impromptu performance and they'd go, oh, what a sweet little boy, here's some money. So I basically became a hustler very young. And then I graduated from the ukulele to the banjo, which I really wanted, didn't believe I'd get for Christmas. And a ukulele is a small wooden instrument originated in Hawaii. It's the one that lots of um, kind of... Uh, Cool bearded dudes with tattoos now play. Um, a banjo, of course, is more of a country music or a folk instrument with a big kind of drum at one end and a twangy dueling So banjos. is that the one that
0: George Formby was renowned George Formby
1: for? played the banjo ukulele, so he, oh, okay. he, he spanned the two. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, so I went for the wooden ukulele to the big banjo. And then by the age of 12, when I suddenly realized that girls were far more interesting than I had previously thought... I realized that girls weren't really turned on by a guy turning up saying, hey baby, I'll play the banjo. So quickly, I moved to the guitar. And because I loved playing, I mean, it, you know, I have a theory, to be honest with that is, if you cut us in half as humans, we're like a stick of rock. It says who we are down the middle. And if you cut me in half, it says musician, writer, entertainer. That's what it says. Everything else I do is a kind of a sideline. Really, that's my purpose for breathing. And I quickly became a pretty good guitarist because, I was obsessive. I would, you know, you'd have to pull it from my hands to get me to come and eat.
0: Was that to the detriment of your education?
1: No, not at all. No, I mean, I was a pretty good student in the sense that I suppose as well as being a a, a young hustler, I was a bit OCD, which I still am to this day. I'm a bit focused. And as a result, I did very well at school. Um, But having a father who was clearly clinically nuts, you know, anybody who makes their money being set fire to shot, and, and, and run over you get that in your genetic makeup and it's you don't take life very seriously
0: so you had the passion but you also had the skill but you've got to you've got to have both of them haven't you to make Luckily, this successful?
1: and uh, though i shouldn't say it myself clearly enough people employed me to tell me that i obviously had some talent for this thing and people would buy tickets i had a few lucky breaks i played with johnny cash i played with van rice i played. Various famous folk, and as an artist of my own right, I did okay. So I, what's know.
0: the story about the lucky break you had performing with Johnny Cash? A musician oh, didn't that him?
1: That was simply a guy was sick. Uh, it, it wasn't any of my talent, etc. Uh, and it's a, a, it, not too complex a story, but essentially, I just played him for one evening. I was a talented 18-year-old 12-string guitarist. I could play six-string, but I was pretty cool on the 12-string. And my stepmother happened to be working uh, her company at Wembley. And some people were talking, saying they needed that. So she thought, ah, my stepson, he's the sort of boy. And so I turned up. They didn't tell me who it was. I was on the stage kind of, just off the stage
0: so this was supporting him as a support Uh, act or playing with him no
1: no i was just the guitarist he had while he was singing yeah yeah oh wow so i was at the back obviously you know delicately panicking and freaking out but and he still he was just an amazing person but more importantly you need to know as a musician his songs were easy you know the three chords if you couldn't get that right they should burn your guitar and take your music license away so anyway so i managed to scramble through that and then as a result of that a few people said, oh, we can do this, he can do that. So as I'm fond of saying, you can be good at anything in life, but you just need the odd lucky break. And occasionally I've had some good lucky breaks.
0: I'm not a big believer in luck. I think, I mean, you take the opportunities that come your way and you've got to be in the right place at the right time and recognize the opportunity for what it is. So yeah, you were lucky that the guy was maybe yeah. ill, but you, you were there ready, willing and able to step in.
1: No, I could do it, but it, and again, this is not any any sense of false modesty. It's I I've had so many times where, and it is the the strangeness of bumping to somebody a guy knows you. Somebody says, "Oh, I'm looking for this," and I go, oh, "I know this guy," and so you get a phone call completely out of the blue from a complete stranger you've never met, saying, "I met blah blah," and he said, "Blah blah, can you do it?" And it's on Tuesday, and you go, "Yes." And there's a song, not mine sadly, it's a, a song I love to perform called Five Minutes, and. There's this line in the song that every time I play it on the stage, I sometimes choke up because it actually says, in five minutes, your whole life can change. And that's summed up my entire life. I've had bizarre encounters, chance meetings, which have taken me down completely different roads to where I expected to go.
0: Tony Robbins, the... uh or oh, the, guru, the, guru. the guru says you can cha- you can change your life he says in a heartbeat and he, and he clicks his fingers and he says is that quickly you can change your mind either by the state you you, you put yourself in or by opportunities that that Being come your way open
1: to opportunities. yes and again possibly genetic dna from my dear mad father i have had a tendency to think about something for eight seconds and do it and if i think anybody says what's your worst trait it's doing that And then people say what's your best trait it's doing that
0: hmm. I mean, while I was looking into, you know, preparing for today's interview, it did strike me that you do, I wouldn't say double that's probably impolite, but you do get involved in lots of different things. So it's quite clear you ha- you're passionate about a lot of things from music to, yeah. you know, the, the, the causes that you support. And, and-
1: On my CV, it says, why is he dead? Luck and regular meals. <laughs> I, I, I talk about my life as, it's called a portfolio career, which is actually immaturity masquerading as some sense of purpose and plan. And it's a very personal thing to me. I learned from a very early age that life is short, that it can disappear in the blink of an eye. And I wanted to follow everything I ever wanted to do. I never wanted to look back and say, you know, oh God, I wish I'd have done that. The truth is, and I've written about this at length, I've spent a lot of my life looking back saying, God, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, on the flip side, the reason that you're doing this is you're following something that you thought, hey, this is interesting. I, I want to do that. So when I have been involved in something or someone said, hey, we're thinking of doing this, I'm not a complete idiot. I do think about it. But I think I'd rather have a go than not have a go. And if it's something that I really think is interesting and is really worthwhile, I'll give it a go. I think one of the worst things is looking back and saying, oh, I didn't do that. Now, you, could say, you can say the same about relationships. Many people get into a relationship and think, what the hell did I marry her for? Why did I get that person? And we do it because we're driven as humans by our heart, by our head. As men, most men are driven by their trousers more than any other part of themselves. And so they tend to make a lot of mistakes, trouser-led and touching wood now. I don't think any of the things I did, I don't regret. I don't have any regret of anything I've ever done. And touchwood so far, nothing's failed. You know, things have gone either brilliantly or pretty good, but nothing's been a complete and utter
0: disaster. And sometimes it is a sense of conviction and a sense of belief. And have you enjoyed everything you've done, whether it's partly failed or not, not been a total success?
1: Like most lives, it's a bit like, if you notice, the stories that we tell when a bunch of cronies get together are all the disasters where we all ended up you know, upside down under a boat, blah, blah. We never talk about that very nice lunch we had. So when I look through some, some of the experiences were really quite hard. I don't mean, oh dear. I mean, I've got this other expression. I've actually had a pretty good go so far. I've never been hungry. I've never been homeless. I've always had a couple of quid. I've been pretty much able to go anywhere I want in the world and buy most of the things I ever wanted. I'm not a possessions person. So as a result of that, I think... It's a first-world problem, you know. So if I got a mate of mine turns up, says all oh, my BMW got scratched, and I'm thinking you're worth loads of money, you can go and get it painted. It's a first-world problem. I'm sorry a car got scratched. I'm not. I'm not happy it happened, but then because of my background, meeting, again, you can imagine I've done this sort of stuff an awful lot, being interviewed, and I, and I'm not trotting out the same old stuff. By the way, it's just stuff that occurs to me as we're talking. But one thing that profoundly changed me as a human, I think. It was The Big Issue, first Christmas, and it was Christmas Eve, and we
0: was, we were going to go, obviously Christmas Eve in London, everybody buggers off about one o'clock. Just mention your involvement with Big Issue, because I don't think people understand necessarily okay. your involvement in the very early days.
1: Okay, I'll rewind and then finish this particular little story. Essentially what happened, and this is where luck and Tony Robbins and his mate your own luck, a wonderful friend of mine who's a very well-known broadcaster, Anna Chen, who's an absolutely brilliant writer, journalist, BBC person, etc., was going out with a fantastic, sadly now departed, comedian called Ken Campbell. And Ken had a massive show in Edinburgh. And of course, his beautiful girlfriend, Anna, um, went with him. And in the audience that night, who'd blagged a free ticket, was John Bird, now Lord Bird of Notting Hill. And he was chatting up Anna, because she was quite stunning. And John's a cheeky chappy, and chatting away... Not quite the penny dropping that the actual main star of the show was her, actually her other half. But John, God bless him, is ever persistent. But Anna then said to him, look, you know, cards on the table. That's my boyfriend. Oh, says John. But she said, you know, there's something about you. And John was a playwright at the time, etc. cetera. He said, I've got this friend of mine. You, you two would really get on. And so the next thing, Anna decides, she invites both of us to tea. And we just got on. And we're from very different backgrounds. John came from com- real poverty, seven children, orphaned, prison, juvenile delinquency, whatever. I came from a pretty cozy, although mad, middle-classy, money, father-in-the-film-industry kind of background, living a kind of Enid Blyton childhood in the Scouts and all of that stuff. Nothing, nothing will set the world on fire. But we came together and we were going to do a magazine together. In fact, we're about to do one now. We're going to not do the magazine we were trying to do 30 years ago. So... We started planning this magazine together because John was also a printer. And John is like, anybody knows John, he's like Google. You want to know anything about history? Don't Google it, just ask John Bird. He is amazing. Then, and I can't go on a great long story, otherwise it would be the longest podcast in living history. But essentially, an old friend of his called Gordon Ronick, who was now the chairman and managing director of The Body Shop with his wife, Anita. Gordon hadn't got any projects of his own. Anita had all the projects for various reasons. Gordon was looking into projects. They had a very good foundation. They were a brilliant couple. They were, to me, a shining example of a corporate couple with a huge social conscience who put millions where that mouth was. Not little bits, huge. Again, I always think it's a tragedy. I mean, Anita sadly passed on, but Gordon has never been awarded in I mean, he's got a few things, but you know, they should make him a lord. I mean he's just a cool guy. But anyway, long story short, Gordon had this idea. He'd been in New York. He was accosted on a rail a subway station by some huge guy, massive guy like a wrestler, who said he thought it was going to be mugged. The guy said, if you give me a dollar, I'll give you this sheet of paper. And it's news about homelessness. So Gordon said, fine, here's a dollar. The guy said, thank you. And then the guy talked to him. He said, look, sir, I've been in prison. I don't want to go back. He was a really lovely guy. Gordon came back and thought, that's an interesting idea. Kicked it around. Nobody could get it to work. Then he met John and thought, John, ex-rough sleeper, ex-prisoner, tough as old boots. You don't mess with John. What do you reckon? John said, yeah, I've got this mate. (laughs) So the next thing, John and I started the big issue.
0: So what was your initial involvement?
1: My initial involvement was, oh God, well, there were two of us, basically. Without boring your audience to death, two people to start a magazine. Guess what I did? Everything. And what did John do? Everything. So I can't give you a list of what I did, but basically... We got a few other people involved and we put a magazine together and we created a structure. The rules, I'm very proud of because I wrote the vendor's rule, they're still in place today. I, because John was frightened of the police and I was very posh and I had a blazer, as John likes to tell everybody, and was the sort of like, you could speak to me and not hide your silver. I had to negotiate with the police and all that stuff. So I was the kind of posh end and John was the kind of battling end. And so, and, and, you know, it wasn't just John or I, there was a team effort, but we created the big issue.
0: Before, you, you differentiated Big Issue as not being a charity, but being... The Big Issue is a social enterprise. It's social enterprise. It is not charitable. It's not, you know, the strap line is a hand up, yeah,
1: not a hand out. It's not, oh, you poor thing. No, no, it's actually get off your rear, go and sell that paper, keep half the money, and we'll give you a load of other support services. And you're proving to you and the world that I might be beaten. I'm not down. I just need a hand. Listen, God knows I need a hand. You need a hand. We all need help. What we don't need is either being patronized or line up over there to get that, and then become supplicant. And that's what charity, I'm not, you know, I know I'm a bit anti-charity, and some charities are wonderful, but technically speaking, the big issue says to people, you can change your own life, is in your hands. We'll give you a hand, but you've got to step up to the plate. And the big issue is now in 72 countries, sells millions of copies, and has changed millions of lives. So I figure now I can do anything. I could murder old age pensioners and they'd let me in heaven, because that's my ticket. I'm going to waive that. Yeah, everything else I've done there. Yeah. So to finish that little anecdote, now you know the big issue involvement, which was life-changing, was Christmas. And everybody listening to this podcast will be familiar that, with that Christmas ritual if you're a Christmassy type person, which was lunchtime, say goodbye to everybody, exchange Christmas cards, and then go back to your my pleasant flat with my beautiful girlfriend and have a nice Christmas. And a guy turned up, one of the vendors, and says, oh, Phil, can I have a quick word? And he plonks his bag down and has a chat. Long story short, he was basically not going to be allowed to sleep at a place at Christmas. I did a bit of trick and hustling and got him a little place and felt good about that, and off I went. And it was only as I was letting myself into my little cozy apartment that I realized with all that stuff and fairy lights and whatever, the guy that saw me had a Sainsbury's bag, which had everything he owned in yeah, his whole life in that bag, which yeah. he plonked next to his chair. And I thought, A, there but for the grace of God. And how lucky I am, blubber, blah, blah, blah. And, and you're lucky in work or whatever. And it profoundly made me sort of think in a different way about being glad that I'd had the opportunities, happy my luck had gone. And yeah, I've had a few kind of bleh, crappy bits to my life, but I haven't had anything that bulldozing, flat,
0: that's it. No, you, you've clearly got a very positive outlook on life, and one of gratitude, and uh, some people call it abundance. But you, you see the, the you see the good in most situations, and and in your life. Well, yeah, because you know we, we live in the uh, fourth wealthiest economy in the world, and we're you know and within that we live in probably the top five percentile in, in the UK as well. Well, I'm
1: you know I'm being interviewed by a nice guy, and I'm eating um scones jam and cream you don't know tea. me that well yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah but you, you, you got me some tea and i did hey i did get you tea in a yeah. scone yeah. so, my, so up up is it scone, scone or scone yeah <laughs> so the big issue has obviously been a huge success but one i mean i travel a lot on the train and yeah. uh, like yesterday there were people sleeping rough even this morning and not selling the big issue and people coming around with cards and begging for money and you just feel so crap because you can't give to everybody so how do you deal with that yourself i mean you know emotionally I think, and it's, look, we'd
1: all like, every time we see somebody, It's a bit, I think one of the weirdest ones is tourist poverty, is when people travel in their cosy jet, to go to blah blah and they're in some terrible country and they're wandering around looking at temples and whatever and then they see like some 11 year old kids who are like street kids and they think oh i should take them off the streets today i'll adopt them every dog because i love dogs and cats i'll take them all back from greece with me or whatever and the world unfortunately is full of this abject misery which is shoved in our face now we can guilt ridden etc or give all the money away etc and i think that all we can do which is what i do is select as much as i can who i think I can help where my money will do the best. And unsurprisingly, I think buying a copy of The Big Issue is good enough. If you want to start going on night hikes and raising money and baths of custard and all that stuff, you can do that. But I've often said to certainly all my friends and close acquaintances, just buy the paper. That's all you've got to do. Because... You are buying it from a person like you and me, a small business person. That's how I kind of see myself as a small business person. And that man or woman standing on the street, they've got their own company. And are you just supporting that one person, that one vendor when you, well, when you buy a phone no. doesn't go into a pot? No, that's what's beautiful. You're supporting everybody because that money, half of it is theirs. So that goes into their bank account. So they're now saving money and they've got economic power. If they think, actually, I fancy a, an ice cream, I'll go and buy one. Okay, so that's the number one. The other money keeps the big issue going. So the magazine and the staff, whatever, which means it can take advertising and it can take all the other money it makes and attracts by being a brand and putting it into vendor uh, workshops and training schemes and college funds, etc. So big issue vendors don't just sell the paper and get a little bit of money. They've got a whole giant support team. As a result of it, it spawned something even bigger than the big issue. And that's big invest. Now this is the big issue: is investment arm. John and Nigel, Nigel Kershaw, the CEO, they managed to because they're a pair of hustlers get millions out of the banks. I don't really guilt trip them personally, and now they're taking that money and they are supporting hundreds of social enterprise businesses. These are businesses which will do something in your area, which makes your life better: recycling, cheap bakery, da 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 but all the profits go back into the company. There's no rich shareholders. There's no giant evil profiteering corporate nonsense. And that's the big issue, making an even huger footprint in England and around the world. They're supporting places everywhere. You go to a bank and we know what the banks are. They're just a bunch of evil crooks who just don't help anybody. And they're only in it to make more money at the expense of us, the poor mugs. The big issue doesn't do that. It lends people on a very ethical way. It supports them. It guides them. So as a result, these are businesses that under their umbrella can only grow.
0: Well, it certainly sounds uh, a fantastic. I also noticed they have a shop online as well. You can buy yeah. some of the And presumably that all goes into it the- It all goes into the
1: central pot. And think about this. What is the journey of a vendor?
0: Again, I've got endless stories,
1: but a vendor is somebody- like you and me. And if if my luck really changed, I'm hoping I've got a couple of quid, I can sell everything, I've got some family, I've got friends that might let me sleep on their couch or whatever, but hopefully I won't get that low. But if I was that unfortunate and I went to the big issue, they're going to save me. All I've got to do is make a bit of effort. Get up tomorrow, go to my pitch and sell my paper. And then they say, hey, we've got this education thing. We've got this scheme. We've got, we can dry you out if you're a drunk or an alcoholic or you've got drug issues. We've got counsellors for you and they will fix me again as much as they can. And all that anybody has to do is just buy the paper. Now, Big Bigger Invest is even bigger. That's saying to local areas, you've got small businesses that are going to really benefit this area, like a creche. We're all, the, you know, I mean, don't get me going on one of my soapbox about the government, but. When I was younger, there was a thing called a nursery place. Now I live in, a, in England where nursery places are like 500 quid a week. Who the hell's got 20 grand for their three-year-old? Who? Who are these people? I don't know. And I then think to myself, things like that which have been taken away. The state has rolled back. Huge. Huge. You know, people, why do I pay my tax? But, but the big issue, as I say, will get that. They'll get a crush going in an area where it'll be two quid a day or something like that, or 10 quid a day, which somebody could afford. And then they can go and work knowing they've got a proper place, etc. So this is not being an advert for the big issue, by the way, because I'm just a kind of ex-big issue. <laughs> it's still involved in the sense that I hang around with John and all everybody else, but I'm not officially part of it, but I turn up at events and things, obviously.
0: You're still heavily involved. And I believe you, you wrote a song last Christmas. Yeah, I, d- I did the Christmas
1: single. And, and we raised a shed load of money there, and I was very pleased to yeah, do it. it was a good song. I saw yeah, it, I yeah. heard it on, yeah. online. Very good. I'm, I'm very grateful to everybody that bought it, because that just means the... And the vendors liked it, which was really important. And Bill, one of the vendors, said to me, I just wrote... He said, you just wrote my life, which I thought was the best compliment anybody ever paid me in my entire musical career.
0: So you're obviously passionate about helping others, less well-off than yourself, and The Big Issue is a fine example of that. You're also very... Um, up on the Timpan Alley movement and trying to save Timpan Alley and Denmark Street and all the musical history. Right.
1: You don't, unless you're born here, I wasn't born here, I was born in leafy Hertfordshire. You become, if you live in London, you become a Londoner. If you're born in London, you are a Londoner. But I think I'm a Londoner. Whatever I try to pretend I'm from somewhere else, but you say, yeah, you've been in London about a million years. And as a 16 year old, desperately trying to make my way as a musician, the kind of mecca was denmark street off train cross road in london because it was where all the guitar shops with all the best guitars in the world were and i'd turn up and press my nose against the window and probably played stairway to heaven badly like everybody else does actually no i probably played it quite well actually um and it just became an area which was a very fun part of my teenage years and then <clears throat> coincidentally through another completely weird incident which i'm not going to tell you i ended up running and launching The 12 Bar Club, which is just, it was an amazing music venue. It ran for about 25 years, but we won the Best Music Venue in London Award in a year of opening. And the reason was it was run by a musician, four musicians, and every musician in the world wanted to play there. I don't know why, it was luck, it was whatever we did, but we did it good. And it was a beautiful venue, and it was wonderful. So I spent years of my life, just a couple, like you say, I tend to do something and then push off and then go and do something else. So... I think my shelf life is about two, three years. And then I've done it. You know, people often say, why did you leave things? I said, well, because it was working. Building a model when you're a kid is brilliant. Then you sit there looking at the model sitting on your table and go, well, I've done it now, haven't I? Well, you either put it on the back and start another one. And that's kind of what I've done yeah so the 12 bar club and of course so great affection for the street and i lived and worked and hung around and had a brilliant series of fun down there and then fast forward a zillion years to about 2015 and i got invited i I said to you earlier but the listeners don't know but i'm i'm one of those blokes i'm on a lot of lists you know You'll often see me sneaking down red carpets or turning up at... I don't know why they still let me in, but thank God they do. And I turn up at things and somebody said, oh, you should come to this. And I went down to a music festival and then somebody said, you've got to meet this guy that organized it or one of the organizers, a guy called Henry Scott Irving. And Henry is a really annoying, angry Scotsman who was hugely passionate about what he saw as the destruction of Denmark Street because a giant property company had basically bought the entire street or most of it and were then intent on knocking it flat and putting luxury flats, luxury hotels and luxury shops. And he thought that was not a good idea. And I said, yeah, I don't like this either. I'll help wherever I can. So I kind of joined his Save Denmark Street campaign and we went for years and meetings and we met, oh God, we met everybody. We went to the Houses of Parliament. We, We did the whole bit. But the sad news is, I'm here to tell you, folks, is that prop developers and landlords win. The law is completely on their side. The citizens of this country have no power. Well, I can tell you, as of like in the last couple of weeks, there's a few shops still clinging in. All the upper areas have been emptied. The half the other back has been is now a giant hole, ready for luxury apartments, luxury shops, etc.
0: I think the future is Westfield. One big shopping mall. That's, that's, what, that's what we're going to become. I
1: think it's we're last going to become. Glass marble and eating marble, o, o,
0: obese shoppers.
1: In a sense of irony, the people who've destroyed it have actually copyrighted the name Tin Pan Alley because they want to sell memorabilia. And f- for viewers of a certain age, oh, by the way, I'm not that old, whatever Stephen says. I'm 52, just certain that, for the record. But um, there, a, there was a Joni Mitchell song called Yellow Taxi. And in it, she says, they paved over paradise and put up a parking lot. And there's this other great line that says they cut down the trees and put them in a tree museum and you had to pay a dollar to see them. And what's going to happen down there, eventually, it will be a kind of Erzatz Westfield with a few bits of music memorabilia shops and T-shirts saying, here used to be one of the coolest streets in London. <laughs> and it's five quid to see it. I
0: know. It's a shocker, isn't it? So it's terrible. So the
1: campaign itself has ended because they won, which we kind of knew they would, but we thought we should at least let the world know and now we're just completing the documentary which is a historical look it's not some angry demo thing it tells you what we've lost it is a beautiful history that henry and the guys have done of the street how it became what it was the amazing heritage and stuff that poured out of that street and and it ends with that's what has gone
0: when, when does that go live? When does well,
1: that... technically, the trailer will be out in on YouTube, I think, in the next couple of weeks. And it's obviously, um, again, if you know about documentaries, they tend to get entered into festivals and things to get there. You know, you don't. There's not a lot. There's a documentary channel, I understand, but documentaries are a bit more of a specialist thing. But it will be out there, and people will be able to access it. The premiere is on the fifteenth of July at the Phoenix Arts Club on Charis Cross Road. But
0: and there's a few other little premieres, obviously. So that's where I'm at with that. So moving on from your. Uh... Uh, your passions um in terms of campaigning your music career has been very varied shall we say <laughs> you've That's traveled you've traveled the world and yeah. europe has taken to you very kindly and i think you're very popular in places like germany for yeah, example. absolutely yeah. you've even headed up the uh the animals i think you were leading for the yeah, animals that, and- that that was a bit of a weird one i mean
1: a, a potted version of that is that i left the big issue and four weeks later I was on stage in Red Square, Moscow, singing to 100,000 people, which kind of sums up my entire life. Quite frankly, if the Pope phoned me now, would not that, that would be quite normal for my life. As my father used to say, he ran away to join the circus, and then before he knew it, the circus ran away and joined him. And I kind of fit into that category. I'm lucky and you know i've had at the moment you know i'm you know i'm not some world superstar i'm not a millionaire etc god knows i'm trying and i've got a new track out and i'm going to be pushing that in probably september onwards and i'm working on a a musical at the moment so i've got a stage musical coming together uh, which is like a lottery shot but i'm going to do it because it's a passion that i want to do it and i've got concerts and stuff lined up for next year so you're constantly busy You're, you're always i don't play in england much and i thought i'd just get that out onto your podcast and the reason is is because what they've done in England, says Phil Ryan, jumping onto his soapbox, it's change. I'm not resistant to change. Change happens. It's a natural evolution of life. But musicians in London and in England don't get paid anymore. It's like we forgot that these men and women, these boys and girls who are just struggling. I'll give you a depressing statistic. I know a guy, one of the best guitarists I know, actually, a guy called Chris Newland. Chris is a kind of a professory teacher at one of these guitar technology places. And i Spoke to him and he said thousands of these kids leave these music colleges for a really uncertain future. They're super talented, they're super skilled. But no, I made my living, Stephen, when I was 17. I was still at school. And I made my living playing in bars and restaurants. And I could make a good living. If I went and played here and I got into little agencies and they hired me and you go to your local trattoria and
0: then I'd be in the corner. What's changed today? Why is it that you can make a living abroad in, in, in mainland Europe but you can't here? Because England doesn't pay musicians. I mean, I,
1: I, I don't have time because I've got so much on. But I feel like doing a campaign one day and you'll get a shirt that says, why don't we pay our musicians? Because there's lots of reasons. You're talking for live music now, for, for, live. for gigging. And- yeah, live. And just the production of music. If I tell you, and I can't tell you the exact sums because apparently it's a secret. But when we did the Big Issue song, we launched it on a company platform called AWOL, which Put you on every download site. And then because we did a lot of publicity, we did lots of television and radio, lots of very lovely people went on and downloaded it for a quid. And luckily, most of these sites waived their little bit. But if you're a normal musician and you upload something to, I don't know, whatever, Spotify, etc., the chance you get in any money, and I wrote an article about this two years ago, and I pointed out that What's-His-Face, brilliant musical um, artist, uh, Pharrell Williams, who did Happy had something like 21 million hits on Spotify, and they paid him $22,000. Now, the multimillionaire Pharrell, who was probably didn't need the money, well, if he's going to do that, what hope for some of our younger bands? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have all these things, but my favorite quote is Quincy Jones. They broke the music industry, and they don't know how to fix it. How artists are supposed to earn a living, eat, pay their rent, when You don't buy their music. You look at their YouTube site and they've monetized that. But if you don't do anything to help musicians, you're going to end up with a very poor musical landscape of only the super passionate and lucky enough to have a couple of quid to run it and do something else.
0: Is that why the bands of today, the bigger bands of today, do the arena tours to to, to generate... I mean,
1: they used to joke years ago that bands like Iron Maiden, the old kind of big rock dinosaurs, they made more money with merchandise. But now, now, when people say, God, these are amazing tours, isn't it? Why are they all coming? Well, the reason is, that's where your money is. Because if you're going to pay, and again, there's an argument, a bit like theatre tickets, 90 quid and fill up O2, then, you know, not surprising, they're going to make some money. However... Is limited. Uh, uh, the the closure of the 12 bar on Denmark Street and all the other venues that this property development company closed, including both the Marquees. I mean, these guys have done more damage to London than the Luftwaffe, in my opinion. But um, the downside is that all artists can't play. There are not the venues, dude. there are not the venues in London, and people don't want to pay. I'll stop because obviously I'll have a heart attack in a second. But technically speaking, it is seven quid for a glass of red wine in most London venues. Well, why don't you cough up seven quid to see the band and then have a seven quid glass of wine? All right, it's 14 quid. Sorry, I've nipped one of your glasses of wine. But it means the guys and the girls who've got guitars of hundreds of pounds and gear worth hundreds and thousands of pounds can actually make a living and entertain you. But if you won't hand a penny to them, or you, they've got to almost prize it out of you like an oyster out of a shell. So, I mean, where can people find you today then? Oh, so if you Google Phil Ryan, there's two of us. One's dead and one's alive. Okay, we, the we alive prefer guy. the
0: live version. Yeah. yeah, well,
1: the other guy, God bless him, passed on last year, but I'm still here. But I will say to people, if you want to know what I'm up to, just Google Phil Ryan. Go to Phil Ryan philryanmusic.com dot co uk and that's my website you can find out what the hell i'm up to and i pop up i've got a wikipedia page which apparently
0: updates every now and again yeah i've got that here that's where i did my main research so you
1: can sort of find out kind of what i'm up to what i'd say to everybody listening is that if you have a passion if you have the chance to do stuff go do
0: it life is just too short to hang around well, I think on that note, Phil, I think we'll wrap it up. But before we do, just, I mean, social media, Phil Rhyme Music tweets, Phil
1: Rhyme Music Instagram. You know, I'm everywhere. Phil Rhyme Facebook. You know, just put if you type in
0: Phil Rhyme Music, I'm a bit like kind of herpes, but slightly more popular. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Phil. I'm very grateful for your time. Cheers. And I'll let you crack on with your day. <laughs> Thank you.